Welcome to the Leading Voices with ULI, a podcast of the Urban Land Institute. In this podcast series, we interview city builders who use innovative approaches to create healthier, more economically vibrant communities with character and a high quality of life. These leaders provide inspiration to those of us looking to play a role in building better cities. Hi, I'm Matt Sleppin, a longtime member of ULI and one of its foundation governors. I founded Terra Search Partners, a real estate-focused recruiting firm, about 10 years ago. And as part of my own leadership journey, I've been lucky enough to form relationships with the leaders in the real estate and land use industry. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to speak with Kimber Lanning, who is the founder and executive director of Local First Arizona, which is the largest local business coalition in the United States. Kimber created Local First about 13 years ago as a small business owner seeking a voice for small businesses in the state. She herself owns three small businesses, including Stinkweeds, which she founded at age 19, a new and used record shop in Phoenix. Kimber and I had a discussion about the importance and impact of small and local businesses on both the fabric and economic success of our communities. Kimber is a passionate advocate. We had a great back and forth on these topics. Here we go. So I'm curious how you got into this. And so you were an architecture student, but then at age like 19, you started a record store. So kind of talk about that and then your progression to then founding Local First. Sure. Um, so I just simply was not happy in college. You know, uh, I, I graduated from high school early. I crammed it all in because I was excited to get out to have what I thought were going to be big world conversations. And uh, and I felt like college was just extended high school and uh, the conversations were still about where's the party going to be. And I wanted to have conversations about, you know, equity and war and everything else, you know, the dramatic 19 uh, year old. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to leave this situation. I'm going to open up a record store and then uh, give it three years and, and figure out if I want to go back to college or move to the East Coast or, you know, leave my options open. And uh, so I opened the store and um, and it did well and I loved it. And uh, one thing led to another and, and uh, in the spring we'll be celebrating 30 years Um and it did transform my life. You know, I used to tell people that uh, I'm actually a social worker cleverly disguised as a record store owner uh, because I, I really feel that, you know, bookstores and record stores are community spaces that um, can really transform communities and uh, I think also make people feel differently about their neighbors and feel differently about the place they live. So unbeknownst to me, I was participating in placemaking um, that many years ago, and there's just um, – uh, a very long line of what I call my kids, you know, kids who grew up in my store who went to go do great things in somebody else's city. And I started to get sort of competitive about that. You know, they'd come back at the holidays and tell me what great things they did somewhere else. And I'd always think to myself, man, you know, why why didn't you stay here and do that? Why Why didn't you want to stay here? And they would say things to me like, ah, this place has no culture. It has no soul. And um, and I really started to think, well, gosh, why why is it that I feel all of this culture and soul and other people don't? And that got mm-hmm. me thinking about placemaking way back then. And um, 
And then in the late 90s, I realized how many bright young artists there were in all sorts of uh, creative fields that were not really able to survive here. You know, we, we have world-class educational institutions, but we don't have any quality, small or mid-sized theaters to, um, to host their work or to help them become uh, anything other than just emerging artists, right? A mid-career artist was really hard to find here. And that's largely because our cities here, you know, anybody that knows Phoenix knows we are many, I think, over 20 um, municipalities squished together in a megalopolis. And they don't think collaboratively. Um, and they don't think about the betterment of the entire. Uh, they think about, they think competitively, ultimately. So we have, every one of those cities has some sort of a center for the arts that's this huge monolithic and some of them are beautiful i don't mean to put them down but you know do we really need 15 of them in in one city what what we really needed was for somebody to raise their hand and say instead of building that uh you know several hundred million dollar uh institution we are going to break that up and build a series of 3 to 500 square foot theater spaces to begin incubating um emerging artists to help them become mid-career and career professionals and stay here. And so uh -huh. with that in mind, I opened up a space called Modified Arts, uh, which was a uh, performance space and gallery, um, a small space, 2,200 square feet, but we did theater and film and live music and gallery receptions. And I tried to be, um, you know, keep keep a, a world view. We had a wide variety of artists. So on the music side, the Fleet Foxes played there, Arcade Fire played there the first time they came through town, and um, a wide variety of um, independent indie rock bands. And, um, and then on the gallery side, I showed a wide variety of painters and photographers and sculptors and, uh, and again, any kind of art. So, I mean, we had such a flood the moment that we opened. It was um, three to five performances a night, five to seven nights a week for 12 straight years. And wow. that really enabled a lot of people to springboard from that and begin their careers here. And again, underscoring this connection to place and how that relates to um, to the opportunities and the way you feel about the place that you live and um, unique experiences and, and the people that you're thrown in with and um those things really did set the uh playing field for me to start local first arizona in 2003 mm -hmm. and, and go back to that a little bit I'm, I'm curious in one personal note i started a coffee house at my college which is still 40 years later running uh, called the cat and the cream coffee house at oberlin and it became an institution from a seedling and the seedling was i wanted a place to play and there was nowhere warm for me to play, but then it became a place that, you know, both internal and uh, visiting acts began to play in an incubated wonderful things. So mm -hmm. fascinating mm -hmm. work. That's Is, wonderful. And uh, uh, congratulations to you. I, I can't even begin to tell you how many lives I'm sure you've impacted. Not nearly in the same way, but it's it's just a, a great story. And And did this change the neighborhood or did it change the city in that did it create kind of an arts district in a place between the record store and the, and the um, performance space? Yeah. So when I opened up the, the performance space, um, it was sort of a blighted and abandoned uh, area. There was a hubcap shop and a liquor store there on this stretch of Roosevelt Street. 
And a lot of people were, frankly, afraid to come down. I regularly fielded phone calls from parents asking if it was safe for their kids to come to a show. Mm. And um, in over 12 years, the neighborhood was transformed. Um, again, it's not about me. It's it's really about being in the right place at the right time. Uh, the second gallery opened up about a year and a half later, and then a restaurant opened up that had wine. And then we knew we had something, right? There were three of us down there uh, marketing right. and promoting people to come down and uh, – I would say there were over 30, at, at the peak, there were over 30 art galleries, five restaurants, three wine bars, about 10 retailers, and um, a light rail stop that says Arts District. You know, when, when the light rail construction began, they, they were planning on not putting a stop on Roosevelt, and instead, the um, you know, we've won uh, top 10 arts districts in the country and one of the best neighborhoods in America from the American Planning Association, and... Um, so they put a light rail stop there, and it's now the second most utilized stop aside from the one that's right in front of the uh, the stadium. So it it really is um, a testament to two things in my mind: the power of what small business can do. You know, having eyes on the street, we reduce crime by sixty two percent while still being affordable and inclusive. Six of us. This is critically important. Six of us were able to buy our buildings which did two things. One is it prevented the city from being able to just bulldoze the neighborhood when they wanted to. Uh, but two, we were able to keep it really affordable for the artists. I mean, musicians would come in and I would say it's 160 bucks to rent the room. And they would say, well, what if, what if I bring 200 people? I'd say it's 160 bucks. And they'd say, well, what if I want to rehearse three times that day? And I say that it's 160 bucks. And I was able to do that to help them build their micro entrepreneur uh, you know, uh, concept and and hold that price down. And we were able to do that for years and years and years. And also, you know, on the visual arts side, we only ever took 30% of a sale while providing 100% of the marketing and outreach. And I was able to do that because my mortgage was so low. And there's six of us down there doing that. And that's really the only reason, you know, you see arts districts get squished out all the time because new development coming in, and, and we're facing a lot of that right now. Um, but those six of us are still there holding the price point. Well, and, and we'll, we'll come to, to um, Local First in a second, but how, if, as an entrepreneur, you're lucky enough to have been in at a good price point and timing in the market, but then to hold prices down uh, considerably below market on an ongoing basis sounds more like a nonprofit than a for-profit or a mission-oriented organization versus an entrepreneur. Have you not uh, raised rents commensurate with the marketplace over that time? Well, I didn't for a long time. Uh, and it's funny, what I, what I call it is a, a nonprofit but not on purpose. Um, that's what Modified was. And um, it uh, it was run by volunteers. It was a community space, and I just happened to be in the driver's seat and was able to um, allow a lot of musicians and painters and others a leg up. Um, again, I look at it as being a springboard. I was that critical person um, who was able to springboard many, many people onto their careers by providing a, a step that they could actually reach. Um, so, and that, that was an important, uh, I think role for, for me to play. Um, and I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm mother Teresa and all this, my property has, you know, easily quadrupled in value during the time that I've been doing this. So 
um, it's not that I'm a saint. There, there's, um, it's a long-term investment for me, and it'll probably save me when I'm a little old lady. But uh, for the mm-hmm. timing, um, for the timing, it, it was the right thing to do, and I'd do it again in a, in a second. But um, you know, you asked me that the second part of that question, which I is slipped my mind right now, um, in terms of um, being a nonprofit versus a for-profit. Was there another yeah, part to that question, Matt? No, I think I think you answered the question, and it's interesting, you know. But so I'll get to the next question, which is, you know, we all know these places in different cities. I grew up in Philadelphia, so South Street created this when I was growing up, in in very much the same way, and it did become an arts district, and so local and so interesting and uh, enlivened. It was, it was amazing. It was a magnet for people from all over the area, and so you did that in Phoenix then what made the leap from doing that as a business owner in a successful neighborhood to local first? Sure. Um, So if you think about, um, go back to my record store for a second and think about um, how brutal the music industry has been over the last 20 years. Um, And when I mean brutal, I mean... um, not only the wave of digital downloads and, and people being able to access their music for free, that, that's really the least of my concerns. Um, I've been at war with my own industry for 20 years. The major labels are all about, um, you know, sticking with the big guys. They they give sweetheart deals to the Best Buy or the Walmart or the Target or whatever it is for many, many years. So they would sell it below cost to those guys who would then put it in the Sunday paper to make people think that I couldn't possibly compete. And um, so I was the victim of every backdoor deal that you could possibly ever imagine between behemoth corporations who frankly didn't care. You know, so a, a simple example would be they didn't used to have street dates. You know, everything now is supposed to be released on the same day. And I've been in this business long enough that we used to just release it when we got it. And, um, and then, you know, when the big guys came on, they started getting mad because the little guys, frankly, would, would release it sooner because we, we didn't have the huge system. Uh, I didn't receive it in the Midwest and then have to ship it out to 480 stores. I just simply got my box and opened it and started selling. Hey. And, right. um, and so they, they started to threaten us and, 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 you know, and basically tried to force everyone in line. And I, I was just from a very early age that just didn't sit well with me. And so I was battling them way back when. And I said, if you don't like me selling it, um, then sue me. Take it public. I want you to sue me. And uh, I challenged them. And I continue to this day to sell it whenever I want to sell it because I think it's illegal to try to tell me that I can buy it from you, but I can't sell it until everybody else is organized. It flies in the face of capitalism. And so when you think about what I've seen and what I've known, it really does lead you directly to Local First Arizona, which is leveling the playing field for independently owned businesses. So in 2002 or three. A study was done in Austin, Texas, that showed uh, that three times the money that you spend at a locally owned business stays and recirculates in the local community versus the same amount of money, you know, spent at a at a chain Uh store. So this study was done by Civic Economics, and ironically, it it studied a bookstore and a record store in Austin, Texas, uh, independently owned. 
uh, I think it was Book People in, in Waterloo, directly across the street from a Borders. And that Borders uh-huh. had been subsidized using taxpayer money. And they came in and studied, hey, as a consumer, I'm spending my money here or there. How much of it stays? And um, the study was really groundbreaking. And I actually flew to Austin to meet them and talk to them. And I came home and launched Local First Arizona. Um, and, and I think Local First Success really is partly because I'm a fighter who who knows what it feels like to be the victim of unfair business practices. And um, and so I just started writing letters to every small business I could find. And while I was still in my living room, I had 600 businesses aligned in a coalition to have a voice. And at this time, you know, out in the West Valley, Cabela's store got a a $68 million subsidy, uh, Bass Pro out in the East Valley got a $32 million subsidy. Walmarts were cleaning up 25 to $30 million per store in subsidies. And I started making this all very public. And people were outraged. You know, people don't realize your taxpayer money is going to a company that we can prove now for every two jobs they create, three jobs will be eliminated. I don't care what your background is, that is not economic development, and it should not be paid for with public subsidies. And, and, and that really resonated with a lot of people. And so coming from my background, there were two things, leveling the playing field and then the placemaking. And, you know, so in addition to keeping three times more money, by the way, we're the ones that create the authentic sense of place that makes people want to actually live here. You know, I've searched high and low and I've never, I've never found a single person who said, you know, I, I moved to that town because they had a Coles and Applebee's and a Lowe's on the same corner. And I thought it was really awesome. I mean, I'm not criticizing those businesses. I'm simply making the point that that is not what makes people love their place. I would agree. I would agree. I mean, it is what creates the specialness of a place. And I, I had this fascinating conversation or was on a listened to a panel a couple of weeks ago, and they had some uh, CEOs of shopping center companies, and they were talking about curating their malls. And I didn't get a chance to ask the question, but really wanted to because they use this incredibly wonderful, creative, and precious word, curate. But I think they were curating their malls from among the 100 retailers that they have in every mall. Sure. You know, but there's people that also on, you know, Channel 8, and they've got 12 colors to choose from, and they've got a, a simple black outline that they're filling in with their colored paints and they feel like it's a creative endeavor and they don't necessarily realize how limited they are. Um, so I have a lot of thought about that. About that. So uh, to me, those aren't curated because they have only a set number of choices. And, um, and you know, it's sort of like the model home department. Do you want, which one of these four model homes floor plans do you choose? It, it's so limiting and, um, and, and it's disappointing, I think, that, uh, that they feel that that's a creative exercise and would use the word curated. But in addition, I, I want to dig deeper than that, Matt, because what really is happening there is that developers are limited in the number of the types of businesses they can choose from because the banks holding all the money um, generally aren't going to lend to a truly creative endeavor because to them that equates to risk. So if I'm a developer and I've got this great project um, and I go to get it funded, if I've got a Starbucks, I'm a thousand times more likely to get that funded than I would be if I went in and said, you know, in my town, our coolest coffee shop might be Lux, you know, as one example. Lux is doing, you know, uh, several million dollars out of 
less than 2,000 square feet. It's hugely popular. I don't care when you go. It, it blows Starbucks out of the water. But if you submit that to a banker who sends it to an underwriter on the East Coast, they don't know what Lux is and they don't like it. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to take a risk on it. But you walk in with a Starbucks, how do we, where do we sign? So the, the developers who generally, I will say, uh, lack creativity in their own right, are doubly limited by the fact that they can't get funding for unique and creative places, even though the developer and the banker would say, we want more cool creative. We know what it feels like to go to those cool creative places. We want more of that. They're unwilling to fund it, and many of them are unwilling to build it. So um, so we've got a major disconnect happening in this country that I think needs to be identified. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to talk about local first from the ground-up standpoint of the organizations that you help incubate and support, but stick with this topic and how do you get um, the bank or the CMBS lender indeed to finance the deal that has a Lux instead of a Starbucks? So uh, my solution is local banking. So community banks with localized decision-making, they work exceptionally well. If you look at downtown Denver and you look at probably 90% of those cool projects that house cool independent restaurants and buildings, they're going to be funded by First Bank, which is, I believe, the first or second largest independent bank in the U.S., and they're based right there in Denver. And that means that if you're a developer, you can actually get a bank president over to look at your project, you know, or somebody that's invested deeply in Denver and cares. And um, their entire charter, their mission is to invest their money uh, back into that region. So our problem here in Arizona is that we have 96% of our money deposited in non-local banks. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the, I think that uh, we, we need to better address how our communities are being built. I will tell you that a lot of my talks, I start by asking people to just pause for a minute and think about your favorite place. Think about your favorite place. It can be urban. It can be rural. It can be a main street. It could be uh, the neighborhood where you grew up. What, what is it that you love? Is it a, is it a, if it's a commercial corridor, is it a tree-lined street? Is it walkable? Does it have a bunch of funky old buildings? Is it, lo- is it a shopping mall? What is it, you know? And I'll get the audience talking and 99% of the people love a tree-lined street with a lot of new and old buildings clustered together. It's walkable. It's window shopping. It's people coming and going. It's sidewalk cafes. And um, and then I'll ask, okay, so anybody in the room here envision uh, six lanes of traffic, an intersection either way, and maybe a Walgreens on one corner and a Home Depot and maybe big, huge neon sale signs. And people will laugh out loud. And I'll say, oh, it's funny. I said, I don't mean to be funny, but, you know, and people think, well, that's absurd. Why would that be our favorite place? And I said, well, then why are we building that? Because we build that over and over and over. And then um, people will stop and think, and, and I'll start to dissect how we got this machine moving. And yet we're all standing around looking at each other going, okay, okay, stop. We, we have enough of that. Let's get back to something that's authentic. You know, the, the millennials and the active boomers are now voting. And they're saying, we don't want that. You know, the American Planning Association just issued a massive study just less than two years ago that showed that 8% of millennials want to live in a suburban environment where they have to drive. 8%. So, and I think it was even less for active boomers. So, you know, 
we all have a lot of questions uh, to ask how we are going to adjust. And I think those cities that aren't quick to respond, that aren't already working on infill and aren't protecting their older buildings um, are going to be left behind because they're not going to be competitive for a higher educated workforce. You know, the higher educated workforce is looking for a more unique, authentic lifestyle. Uh, and if you're not building that right now, nobody's going to care about your town in less than five years. And, and I, that sounds harsh, but that's really where we're headed. It's 100% true, and I think we all know it. We feel it in our guts, and everyone listening to you and me talk about this will say exactly the same thing that you did about those places that makes their heart sings and gives them good eye candy during the walk, and it, of course, is never the six-lane highway. Um, it, it it can become a more diverse, it can become a very diverse group of places that work well, but um, you're putting your finger on, on the right issues, and I'm a boomer who voted with my feet, and I can walk to work, and I live in the city, and I moved in from the suburbs, and it's great. Right? We all know that. Right. Yeah. You know, any town that isn't mindful of having diverse price points and diverse residents who have very diverse needs is ultimately going to uh, be in a game of musical chairs where you're going to get burned um, sooner or later because no matter what kind of community you're building, if it's homogenized, if it's a monoculture, it's not going to work and no one's going to want to live there. And um, and so I think that the, the economic benefits of respecting and encouraging diversity are only just now starting to be measured in the new development space. And how do we tell that story and make it more appealing and attractive to your average mm -hmm. developer? That That's where mm -hmm. we are right now. You know, it's interesting because the economic development, the, the economic benefits of diversity in the way that you're describing become a planning issue, not a developer issue. So mm -hmm. you need it in the neighborhood. You may not need it in this exact, in this one building, but it has to be in the overall plan for that air, that that neighborhood. I agree. I, I do think it's an and though, and not an or. I don't think it's. I think it's mm -hmm. economic development and planning as well as the development community. And so we just launched a new program at Local First that's called Forum. And the whole goal is to bring those different communities together to have these kinds of conversations. What are the unintended consequences of mandating ground floor retail? And you can just see in Phoenix, we have a sea of failed ground floor activation. And that is partly the planning for sure, but it's a big part the developers as well. If you design a four or five story apartment building that has no opportunity for those residents to exit onto the street on their feet, then how will they ever be utilizing the coffee shop that you've put in on the ground floor, right? They're designed to go to the parking garage, to back out of the back of the building and drive on your way and in front of the, the spot. Um, there's no place to park your car. So, you know, it's just poor design as well as poor planning. Um, and all of that needs to be in front of our economic developers because they're MIA somewhere off trying to attract another company to move in here. Um, you know, I, I think that they need to be at the table understanding that if you have a neighborhood where you've preserved older buildings alongside new buildings and they have um, – 
storefronts, activated retail, you get two benefits. Number one, we can prove over and over you get more jobs per block. You get more diverse jobs per block. Um, but number two, you get this incredible sense of place that makes people want to live there. And economic developers really should care about both of those things. And yet they're not at the, converse, they're not at the seat at the table at all. And, and that's a real big challenge. Uh-huh. And talk more about this program that you have called the Forum and how you get those different stakeholders to talk and how that conversation goes about things that people either may not be interested in or where their both short-term and long-term interests may be unclear or too diverse. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it doesn't always go the same. I, there's not a stock answer to that. You know, sometimes uh-huh. we walk away with big aha moments, and sometimes we walk away grumbling. And um, you know, um, it can it can be fiery uh, to say the least. You know, there's a, um, a I, I would say a large battle that's occurring right now. We have worked really hard on adaptive reuse. Um, as you know, here in Phoenix, we have what is potentially one of the most progressive adaptive reuse programs in the country. And um, it's opened uh, probably in the neighborhood of 85 new businesses have opened up in our city center, all of them in form- formerly blighted older buildings. And that has opened up a whole lot of concern and um, stress on some of the neighborhoods um, in the north central area, which are primarily older residents that have lived there 40, 50 years, um, primarily Anglo, um, who feel like these activated business spaces are bringing too much traffic and this new element that they're not comfortable with, um, and light rail included. And so they're pushing back, and they've decided that adaptive reuse is the death of neighborhoods. And I think that we all go into a scary place when the conversations becomes, you know, the neighborhoods versus the businesses. Because businesses are part of neighborhoods, and they should be viewed as such. So when you get the neighbors on one side and the businesses on the other side, you're already in trouble. And we need to think about how to bring those two groups together on a regular basis. And Forum does that. You know, we're not, we're simply not saying that business is always right, and business does needs to be, needs to be more responsive if, um, if it if it is causing uh, very real problems. But what we have are seniors who actually believe they have a right to prevent somebody from parking on the street in front of their house, and they just simply don't. Um, And sometimes we have businesses that are very concerned about the neighbor's needs and other times not. So Forum is a place where we can bring together everyone around the table, and and, uh, sometimes we have very heated discussions. But um, in that particular case, the the neighbors got together and tried to write a um, text amendment that would have changed the parking requirements for adaptive reuse, which is a pretty clever way of increasing parking requirements, which would have limited a whole bunch of um, new, I shouldn't say new, but development going into funky old buildings. And uh, we caught it midway through the conversation, and we were able to get it into a broader public dialogue. And it's at bay right now, um, but I I don't really know what's going to happen. There's a couple of developments here that have gone badly. I I should say badly from the neighbor's perspective, certainly not from the business owner's perspective. But, you know, a 4,000-square-foot restaurant doing $10 million worth of business, if you can believe that. um, Wow. Uh, they are insanely busy, more busy than anybody ever thought, and that neighborhood is so angry that they are driving this whole conversation across the city. 
And um, I just keep advocating that we simply cannot change policy citywide over one bad circumstance. How can we fix that circumstance? I'm certainly not unsympathetic to that neighborhood, but, you know, going and changing the law going forward, not only is it not going to be fair for the whole city, it's also not going to fix their problem today. So, you know, that's what we're trying to do is have that conversation where we bring everybody together to have proactive and constructive discussion about, okay, if we overcorrected, then what is the right, what is the right number? Right. God, it's fascinating because what you want is you want an active neighborhood. You want a restaurant. You want it to be successful. But when it becomes too successful, then you have a problem. (laughs) And then, and how do you, now, if you're the, place in which you've used the word fiery, you've used the word hot, where can people have tough, difficult dialogue and then hopefully come to some kind of consensus? And maybe that's one of the problems in our country right now is we have hot dialogue, but hard to find consensus. But if you're able to get it to a constructive place, that's really, really important. Well, that's always my goal, and I think that's just part of my personality. You know, I actually mm-hmm. like grumpy old neighbors and seeing if I can sit down with them and have a constructive conversation. I, I had a guy that was so angry just recently, he was shaking, and I convinced him to sit down next to me so we could talk, and I made light of it. I said, hey, are you, you want to you do some push-ups? It would probably feel a lot better if you did some push-ups, you know, and just uh, making him laugh and, and getting to a point where, hey, let's take the emotion out of this. And let's just have a constructive conversation, you know, but, but don't try to tell me that residents don't have the right to park on the street in front of your house because they do. You know what I mean? It's sort of, sort of like, how yep. do you bring somebody along and say, look, I hear you, you know, and he's like, I have people vomiting in my back, you know, behind my, my house. And I say, okay, and you can limit every business uh, in the entire city uh, to their parking. And that's still not going to get rid of the guy that's vomiting in the, in the alley behind your house. And I'm sorry, you know, I do care, but, you, but these types of policies are not going to get you where you need to go. So let's talk about what is, and I don't think this is unique to, to, to my place. I think that this is happening across the country as we see more cities uh, become more urban and we have this strong push around independently owned businesses, they are moving into uh, older areas that are perhaps not zoned. They're certainly not laid out like a strip mall with a sea of parking. Um, And so as you see that corner cafe or that restaurant moving in um, to a formerly blighted area, you're going to see neighbors go, hey, wait a minute, that used to be a, a sleepy dead place. And now all this activity, uh, I'm not sure I like that. And and so how do we bring them all along in the conversation so that everybody feels like they've been heard? And um, that's what we're trying to do with Forum. That sounds wonderful. And it just takes – that word I keep coming back to in my world is leadership because it, it takes people with a vision and leadership to be able to articulate those uncomfortable places versus just let everyone talk and blab at each other from their own perspective leadership can get people to that next level. Yeah. Well, I sure hope so. You know, I, I sure hope so. We we keep uh, picking away at it, and I know that I've managed to uh, share a respectful relationship even with people who, uh, you know, vehemently disagree with urbanism or with anything that we're doing at Local First, quite frankly. Um, if I can have a dialogue with folks, I can usually bring them to a place where it's like, okay, we can at least agree to disagree. 
because uh-huh. I, I, you know, I, um, I, I value people's opinions and I think I have empathy. I think a lot of what we've lost in this country is empathy. Um, I, I do care that he's got people, uh, you know, in, you know, he feels like his property values have decreased. Um, and, and that's hard. It's a really hard place for an older man who worked his whole life and that's what he has. You know, I mean, one person said, well, move. Why don't you move? Well, that's not a nice thing to say to a 75-year-old man who's lived there for 45 years, you know. Right. So, um, yeah. you know, we, we need to have more compassion and empathy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely true. So let me make one quote for you in closing and then help me think about this. And the quote in closing is from your website. And so you said on your website, I'm a firm believer in change. I see changes every day and I can feel the success is growing. Together we can create a nationwide platform to implement changes that include localized community, environmentally sustainable communities, quality jobs with living wages, towns with meaningful opportunities, and cities with thoughtful stewards. We've been talking a lot about very granular neighborhood issues, the man puking on the corner because there's a bar next door. Uh, or a new restaurant. So what does that nationwide platform mean to you? Oh, the nationwide platform is very interconnected systems of localized economies that neighborhoods have distinct places as they used to. You know, people still love Chicago to this day because of its unique flavor and because of the local businesses. They will all tell you, I love Chicago because uh, the stores, the restaurants, the chefs, I had the same barber for 40 years. And so... The newer communities like mine, which were built much, much later, need to be thoughtful about how we can reclaim what is authentically ours. And when the development community hears from the consumers, we want more unique, we want more walkable, and they hear it loud and clear, they will respond. And then we have to figure out how to bring the bankers along. And I think that we do that, again, by applying pressure with our voting with our wallet and by voicing, by showing this is what we want. Uh, if you look at uh, Preservation Green Lab study, uh, Older, Smaller, Better, they even showed that communities that protected their older buildings and ushered in unique local businesses, not only do they have more vibrant 24-7 lifestyle, they're actually performing better overall on real estate. And so we are seeing the needle move, and it's, uh, it's happening right now. And uh, the development community, I think, needs to be very quick to respond. Wonderful. Hey, um, I think we need to wrap up. Kimber, this has been delightful, so thank you. Um, I hope we meet sometime. I would love to come to your record store and have a cup of uh, local coffee together. (laughs) Fantastic. I hope you pop in out here anytime. Just give me a call. We hope you enjoyed this installment of the Leading Voices with ULI podcast hosted by the Urban Land Institute. To learn more about ULI's leadership network or to join ULI as a member, please visit uli.org.